Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word, episode number 64, May 2023. What's in a name? Hello, Paul Meyer here. You've heard a lot about phonetics on this podcast, as you'd expect from a show devoted to the spoken word. If you want to deepen your friendship with phonetics, you will enjoy playing with my interactive IPA charts. They're on the paulmeyer.com menu bar. I'm very proud of them. Eric Armstrong and I developed them some years ago. Rest your cursor on any phonetic symbol on those charts and up pops more information about that symbol. And when you click it, lo and behold, you hear me demonstrate it. It's the most visited place on the whole website by far, exceeding even the pages where you can order my nearly 30 dialect and accent manuals. Have fun if you haven't yet visited. I also offer the charts as an iTunes app for just three ninety nine US. Great for use on your phone, Mac or tablet, with or without an internet connection. Last time for our Guess That Accent quiz, I played this clip from the International Dialects of English Archive, Idea, and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. My dad preached to us about the importance of school. In plenty of days I didn't want to go because I didn't have things like the other kids had. Everything was homemade, which my mother was a seamstress. She made everything we wore with the exception of shoes. You had two pair of shoes, one for church, one for school. Isn't she a delight? If you guessed the southern United States, congratulations. If you were able to narrow it down to Alabama, double congratulations. It was Ideas Alabama 4, contributed by Deidre Haig, our associate editor for Alabama. To date, Professor Haig has contributed 11 great recordings from her state, as well as an equal number of samples from elsewhere. Thanks again so much, Deidre. Alabama 4 was an African-American, a retired office administrator from Chambers County, and in her 70s when Deidre recorded her in the year 2000. For the rest of her fascinating narrative, Go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com and drill down to Alabama on the United States page. Now, this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? What i very, very happy is because my key growing and they are very strong and they, they have their own job, their own house, they are very independent, and they help me a lot. Get the answer next time. Before I talk to today's guest, just a reminder that listening to this podcast directly from com is always your best choice. Only there can you get the free extra material related to the guest and the topic that deepens your understanding and enjoyment. Go to the com menu bar And under Other Services, you will find In a Manner of Speaking, with links to each podcast episode. My guest this month is Graham Poynton, former pronunciation advisor at the British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC. He may be the very best person in the world to answer today's question. What's in a name? Welcome, Graham. Welcome to In a Manner of Speaking. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, I've been looking forward to this. So tell us about the BBC Pronunciation Unit. I know it's been going under one name or another pretty nearly 100 years. Uh, I just discovered that George Bernard Shaw, of Pygmalion fame, 
always fascinated yes. by pronunciation itself, was on the committee in his time. Daniel yes, Jones, too, father of phonetics. So yes. tell us about the history of, of, the, of the unit. 1922 is when the BBC, as the British Broadcasting Company, was founded. And uh, as early as 1924, Reith, who was appointed as general manager, who was one of the first four employees of the company, he wrote a book called Broadcast Over Britain as early as 1924, in which he already talked about pronunciation, in mm -hmm. which he said it, they'd endeavoured to find the best speakers of English. Turned out that this was what we call RP. Right. Although he was a Scot, and I, I'm sure that he always believed, as most Scots do, that they speak the best English. What he established in 1924 as, as the best wasn't good enough because the announcers were still having problems. They kept coming up with place names, for instance, particularly mm. place names and people's names that they didn't know how to pronounce. So as early as 1926, it was Arthur Lloyd James, who was then a lecturer in Daniel Jones's department at University College, and a man called J.C. Stobart, who had been a member of the school's inspectorate, and he was seconded by the school's department to work for the BBC as their original, I think it was talks producer or editor, not quite sure what his title was, mm -hmm. but he and Lloyd James between them persuaded Reith that the BBC really needed an advisory committee on spoken English. Yes. And they persuaded Robert Bridges to be its chairman. He was then the poet laureate. Yes. And he had written a book as early as 1910. He'd written a book called English Pronunciation, in which he was advocating a respelling, in fact, a new alphabet, but not because it would make things easier to read, but so that the pronunciation could be fixed. Because once you had a spelling which was unambiguous, then people were obliged to use what he saw as the correct pronunciation yes. from that spelling. And that wasn't just place names and people names. That was in general, yes. And he had also been instrumental in setting up the, uh, what was it called? The Society for Pure English. And Bernard Shaw was never a member of that. Bernard Shaw was persuaded. It took a bit of persuading to make him the deputy chairman of oh. the committee. Originally, the committee had six people. Uh, Daniel Jones also didn't want to be on the committee. He said that Arthur Lloyd James as a, a phonetician was enough. They didn't need two of them. Right. But uh, when you think of the ages of the people who were on that committee, Bridges was born in 1844, so he was 82. Shaw was born in 1856, so he was already 70. Yes. And Arthur Lloyd James was in his early 40s, I think, at this time. So he would have been rather overawed. And, and certainly they wouldn't have listened to him very much, I don't think, the, yes. from their great height. The other members of the committee were an American, Logan Pearsall Smith, who'd long lived in Britain, but he was American born. Yes. And uh, Sir Johnston Forbes Robertson who was uh, a, an actor manager of the old yes, school yes one of the supposedly one of the best speakers of shakespeare of his day yes so four of them were literary figures and two of them were were the linguists and in fact if we go back to 1910 when bridges wrote his book on english pronunciation he'd had a run-in with daniel jones because daniel jones had published a book of transcriptions the year before in which he disclosed that the most common vowel in english was schwa so uh which yes. I think he reckoned was something like 11% of all vowels. Yes. And uh, Bridges wrote in his book that there were those who would say that this was the ravings of a madman. 
we know that today it's certainly the most common vowel. But are, are we saying that back then someone was recommending that we don't say phonetician, but phonetician or something else? Well, with he would say yes, Bridges would have wanted phonetician. He thought and wrote that there was a happy medium that you didn't, without being saying phonetician or phonetician, there was a way of, of pronouncing it which retained a flavour of the original vowel. And apparently he demonstrated this at one of the meetings of the committee. They had meetings every six months only, and they discussed the pronunciation, first of all, of, of vocabulary words. So whether you should say missile or missile. Although we all we now think of the, the ill endings as being completely American, there were certain words which even in British English at that time were pronounced with ill rather than aisle at the end. How would they have landed on robot, which I understand was was robot? This is for my son, who's uh, who's discovered in the sci-fi world that uh, some early sci-fi films referred to robots instead of robots. Any thought on robot versus robot? I've never been asked that before. <laughs> of course, it's borrowed from Czech, but... Um... I really don't know, Robert. Well, I suppose, why not? Yeah, It would okay. make sense, wouldn't it? It's not a stressed syllable. And there are plenty of other words which end in but, like yeah. turbot is a, yeah. a fish. We wouldn't yeah. say turbot. So in those early days, uh, the, the proper, proper, i.e. RP pronunciation of English was definitely on the committee's minds. Uh, but yes. today it's more in, more for place and people names, right? So yes. tell, tell Since, me about the yeah. current, tell me about the BBC's current mission? What, what's the remit of the pronunciation unit today? Well, it's even changed since I left. I left at the end of 2001. And at that point, the rules that we were working on had been set down by the BBC's Board of Governors and Board of Management in the early 1970s, not long before I joined. It was thought that it was only polite to use the pronunciation of the owner of the name whether it was a place name or a person's name. Yes. The rulings of the pronunciation unit were mandatory on staff newsreaders and announcers. Now, whether that was, we get into the old linguistic conundrum of old men and women. Does that mean old men and old women? Or does it mean old men and all women? <laughs> so since some people that we think of as being BBC employees are not actually, they're freelance, Yes. Was it staff newsreaders and all announcers or staff newsreaders and staff announcers? So there, were, there was always a difficulty of knowing who was obliged to follow our recommendations and who they were only recommendations and not obligatory pronunciations. My title was pronunciation advisor. And someone once said in a meeting, we have a pronunciation advisor, not a pronunciation commissar. Uh -huh. That was from the 1970s, and that ruling that certain categories of staff, our recommendations were mandatory for, that wasn't changed until sometime, I'm not quite sure when, but the present ruling is that what the pronunciation recommends is advice, and no one is obliged to follow that advice. Well, that sounds much more modern, doesn't it? Yes, but of course, that can then cause all sorts of problems if you've got different pronunciations of the same name, particularly if it's a foreign name, occurring in the same bulletin, same new or the same news story. 
Yes. If, if we take an extreme case, when the Chinese decided that in future, the capital should always be Beijing and not Peking. I remember reading an article in the Times which used both spellings, and it gave the impression that the article was talking about two different places. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I was doing some background reading on place and people names, Graham, and I learned some new big words to impress my friends. Onomastics, love that word. The study of etymology, history, and use of proper names. Yes. Toponymy, the study of place names. Uh, but my favorite, I think, was anthroponomastics, the study of personal names. So are you an anthroponomastician? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose I am in a sense. One of the things I've been doing since I retired is researching my family history, as yes. so many people do. And one of my family names is Bruff, B-R-O-U-G-H. There was a ventriloquist by the name of Bruff, Oh, yes, wasn't Peter, Bruff, Peter Bruff and Archie Andrews, the only ventriloquist who was a success on radio, which is uh, <laughs> rather strange. Yes. No relation of mine, so far as I'm aware. One family study website claims that the name originates in Central Europe. Well, I've been in touch with him and I say, I, I think that's a bit uh, dangerous suggesting that because it's actually a place name in Britain. There are several place names in Britain, Bruff. There are plenty of places which end in, in Bruff. And it's yes. from the old English word Bur, which is a fortified place. Mm -hmm. The family name is derived from the place name. And what he right. is claiming is that because the word is a Germanic word, the name itself derived from Central Europe on the assumption that the Germans arrived, or the Germanic tribes arrived in Britain from Central Germany. Well, I would say there are, that's, that's uh, a misuse of the word origin mm. for the family name. I think that the family name originated in Britain from the people who lived in places called Bruff. Yes. So, that, yeah. Yeah, so yes, I am interested very much in the etymology of names. My, my own name, Poynton, has three different etymologies, depending yeah. on which, which of the three villages called Poynton in England the family came from. Yes, P-O-I-N-T-O-N. I, I, I took right. a wild swing at your name when we were getting ready to do this, and I thought, I wonder if that was at one point a French name, Pointon, but you tell no, me no. No, the ton at the end is the usual Germanic ton, meaning a homestead, the origin of the word town, presumably. Yeah. Um, and then the I-N is from Ing, the people of a person. Well, I suppose you can go to... Tolkien and Elflings are people who are members of the Elf tribe. So yes. the Ings, Ington is the end of the, the name. And then the first bit, the P-O, has three different origins, depending on uh, which of the three villages it was. It was the, a man called Pocha, or a man called Pova, or a man called Perva. This is assumed from the spellings that you get in medieval texts. Yes, yes. And uh, so depending on which of those three villages you come from, the, the name still ends up being Poynton. It's amazing how our language has these fossilized remains of our history and we can unearth these relics and, and our history is, is revealed, isn't it, in, a, in the it spelling is. and the, na the names, our history is carried in the names. It's amazing. Particularly in, in Britain, the river names are extremely ancient. I come from Stoke-on-Trent and the, the river Trent is, well, there's a Trent in Germany. And then I, I think it's probably the place named Taranto in Italy has a, an origin from Trent as well. There are all sorts of places all over Europe. 
have the same name, which have developed in different ways depending on the language of the speakers from time to time. And it all sort of funnels down to Proto-Indo-European, doesn't it? And you, we get buried in, and lost in the mists of time when all of these <laughs> languages were one, yes. perhaps. Perhaps, yes. And possibly some of these names, the particularly river names, go back to before Indo-European even. Yes, yes, yes. So you certainly do sound like my concept of an anthroponomastician. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's not a word I'm, I think I should be using very often. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. Me neither. I'm not sure if there's anything like a pronunciation unit at any of the American media. It seems unlikely that Americans would be as interested or as particular about pronunciation as quite obviously the Brits have always been. You have an amazing story about how keenly pronunciation matters in the British culture. The controversy, uh, formerly known as controversy, uh, over how to pronounce Lady Diana Spencer's childhood home, Althorpe, A-L-T-H-O-R-P, her birthplace yes. in Northamptonshire. Would you talk about that controversy? Uh, well, the we originally got it from the current Earl's father, so Diana's father, and he said that the the pronunciation was Althrop. Althrop. No, the H is silent, as in Thames, and Thomas. So Althrop. Althrop. Yes. He had actually used the pronunciation Althorpe when he'd given a broadcast appeal for some charity or other. And he was challenged on this. And he said he'd used the pronunciation Althorpe so that people would spell it correctly. Right. But the correct pronunciation was actually Althorpe. At the time that Charles and Diana married, the unit produced a list of names for people and places that would be mentioned in all the, the broadcasts around that event. And we recommended Altrup, and that was fine. Nobody questioned it, and everybody used that pronunciation. That was at the time then, of the marriage, right? That was Yes, that was 1981. But then when she died, we recommended Altrup, and suddenly everybody was saying Althorpe. Well, it, it got into the papers that we were not using the pronunciation that the Earl had recommended. I wrote to the, the new Earl, Charles Spencer, and got a letter back saying, yes, Altrup was definitely the pronunciation used by the family. Right. However, there was a meeting of, I think it was Sky News, Independent Television News, and the BBC with the palace. And the palace said it would help if you all used the same pronunciation. Right. And without referring to the pronunciation unit, and of course, there is no such equivalent body in either the independent television companies, or Sky, without consulting us, they decided on Althorpe because that's how it's spelt. Right. This was then taken up by the papers and caused a lot of controversy in the press. Uh, one of the BBC's royal correspondents refused to use the pronunciation Althorpe and made at least two recordings uh, for camera where she said, and this is me at the family estate in Northamptonshire, avoided using the name because it was wrong. All sorts of spurious arguments were put forward why it should be Althorpe. Someone wrote a, a memo, which I was not supposed to see, but which, as is the way of things, I did, in which he said I was an out-and-out 
altruist, which I wasn't. I was simply wanting to follow the wishes of the family who right. owned the name. And that was BBC policy at the time. And he said, my mother who lives in Rugby, which is a good 30 miles from Altrup, always says Althorpe. And he used this as evidence for why we should say Althorpe. It really beggared belief, actually, that the BBC could stoop to evidence, which was not evidence at all. It was very casuistic. But a few years later, Spencer changed his mind and decided that Althorpe since that was what everybody thought it ought to be, that's what it would be. I would have suggested he changed the spelling back to Altrup because yeah. such spellings did exist. If he was so convinced that Altrup was correct and he wanted that pronunciation, then change the spelling. But we're much more willing to change pronunciation than we are to change spelling. Spelling seems to trump pronunciation, doesn't it? Yes, it does now, which is crazy because it, we've only had a standard spelling since about what, the 1850s when railway timetables needed to be standardised and railway station names needed to be standardised, like we standardised time and we standardised the spelling. Yes. In my own family, one of my grandmother's family name was changed from Wintle, W-I-N-T-L-E, to Winkle, W-I-N-K-L-E, in the mid-1870s. Presumably because in Stoke-on-Trent, people do talk about pittled onions as if it was spelt with a double T. Oh. And when her father went to register the birth and said the name was Wintle, the registrar assumed that this was just the local dialectal pronunciation and wrote down Winkle. And it remained Winkle then forevermore. That's a great story. <laughs> so we're talking about proper names. And I, I, I thought I'd bring up the question of why proper? I mean, I know it's not to distinguish them from improper names, and it's more to do with property than propriety, right? Appropriate is also presumably has the same roots. Examples of pronunciations that take on political overtones. Let's talk about that. We know that um, Derry and Londonderry, I learned that uh, from one of our earliest Northern Ireland subjects on idea, the, the archive, explained that we would immediately know if she was a Catholic or a Protestant, depending on how she refers to a native city. That's true, right? Graham? Yes. And now the BBC tends to say Derry, Londonderry, now, whenever the name is mentioned. Would they spell so, that with a uh, an oblique, with a, with a, a slash uh, between them? Uh, yes, I, I suppose so, yes. How long before the slash disappears and the, <laughs> the city becomes known as Derry, Londonderry? Well, yes, that's a, that's a question, isn't it? Or maybe by that time, the Irish will have unified and they'll just drop the London altogether. Yeah. Certainly, the, we've noticed now with the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine that nobody any longer says Kiev. I think the recommendation that the BBC makes now, I think, is probably Kiev, as if it was spelt sort of K-E-E-I-F, with that I'd put a hyphen between the double E and the I, so two syllables Kiev. But a lot of people have simplified that simply to Kiev. I don't know yes. what, what, happens, what happens in America. What do you call it over there? I think it's Kiev now, Eve. yes, yes. Uh, as if we've suddenly embarrassedly and ashamedly realised that we've been pronouncing it wrong all along, you know, Beijing, Peking. Is, th is that what happened to Kiev and Kiev? Well, yeah, Kiev is the Russian and Kiev is the Ukrainian pronunciation. Ah, right. But I think you would still have chicken Kiev. <laughs> right, in the food, right, yes. Yes, just as we still have Peking duck. Um, Bombay duck, 
not Mumbai Dutch. Yeah. We end up with two two versions of the same name, both of them current, but with different connotations. Fascinating. Any more examples of the political yes, when correctness Kosovo, of place names? Yes, when Kosovo was becoming independent of Serbia, did you call it Kosovo, which is actually the Serbian pronunciation of the name, or Kosova, with an A at the end, and stressed differently, which is the Albanian pronunciation? Depending on which one you use, you might appear to be siding with one part of the discussion, <laughs> the war, whichever you call it, or the other. Yeah. So if you say Kosovo, you're being pro-Albanian. If you say Kosovo, you're being pro-Serbian. So the BBC Pronunciation Unit is called upon to arbitrate in these political disputes, right? And plump for well, one Well, it can make recommendations. It, 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 yes, if it's asked for its advice, it wouldn't make the decision. It would say, this is the pronunciation in, in one language and this is the pronunciation in the other language. And then pass the buck, basically. Sitting on the fence, passing the buck. Yes. Right. Oh, okay. yes. Okay. Uh, you referred me to the story in Paul... Oster's novel? How, do, how does he pronounce his name? Oster? Oster? I have to say, I don't know, but I would call it Oster. A-U-S-T-E-R, Paul Oster, or Oster. But anyway, the novel is 4321, and, and you referred me to this story. He didn't invent the story. I think he invented that particular version of it. I'm going to read the story that you recommended. While waiting to be interviewed by an immigration official at Ellis Island... He struck up a conversation with a fellow Russian Jew. The man said to him, forget the name Reznikov. It won't do you any good here. You need a, an American name for your new life in America. Something with a good American ring to it. Since English was still an alien tongue to Isaac Reznikov in 1900, he asked his older, more experienced compatriot for a suggestion. Tell him you're Rockefeller, the man said. You can't go wrong with that. An hour passed, then another hour, and by the time the 19-year-old Reznikov sat down to be questioned by the immigration official, he had forgotten the name the man had told him to give. Your name? the official asked. Slapping his head in frustration, the weary immigrant blurted out in Yiddish, Ich hab vergessen, I've forgotten. And so it was that Isaac Reznikov began his new life in America as Ichabod Ferguson. Funny story. Sad story. So things have changed since Ellis Island. Catherine Sangster, uh, my last podcast guest and pronunciation editor at the Oxford English Dictionary and a former colleague of yours, I believe, made the point that if you don't honour people's preferred pronunciation of their names, you risk sounding ignorant, while honouring them too precisely, you risk sounding pretentious or even mocking. Uh, I, I could relate to that because... When I first came to the US from Britain many years ago, some of my new American friends loved to call me Paul Meyer instead of Paul Meyer with the American. Hello, Paul, they'd say. Uh, no malice or mockery, it's just fun. Uh, they hadn't mispronounced my name. Meyer is the right pronunciation by American English phonology rules, whereas Mayer would have been a mispronunciation. I don't know if there's a question in all of that that you can dig out. Well, my name, Graham, is one which causes a lot of problems to other people. I don't know how Americans pronounce it, Graham. On the whole, foreigners cannot say it. They, they say Graham. So this begs the question, when is a mispronunciation a mispronunciation? When, and when is it simply in obedience to the local phonology? 
it's very difficult, isn't it? You brought up the question there of whether something was being respectful or being mocking or pretentious. Yes. And I would say that there are some people who, if they speak a different language, a second language, as native speakers, they will sometimes use the phonology of that language, even when they're speaking English. And we have this with people with a South Asian background who are broadcasting for the BBC, and there seem to be increasing numbers of them. The two extremely good newsreaders, Rita Chakrabarti, and excellent journalist and presenter Michelle Hussein, who have started introducing a dental T and D into Indian names like Modi. They will say Nahendra Modi instead of Modi. Yes. But they don't do it when they having to pronounce French names where it would also be correct. Yeah. That sounds to me as if they're, in a sense, showing off. Mm. I know this language. Well, if you can do it for one language, you can do it for all of them where it's appropriate. That's my view. And if you're not going to do it in the other languages, then don't draw attention to it by doing it in one language. Yeah. But there are other journalists who go somewhere and decide they're going to learn the language and they then pronounce it in an exaggerated way just for the names of of that language. We had one in Italy who was pronouncing Italian names in a very Italianate way. So, for instance, the town of Livorno, which is already a new Anglicization because this this is the place which used to be called Leghorn in older days. And of course, as I mentioned, Chicken Kiev, well, there also is a Leghorn chicken, and that's still called a Leghorn chicken. And there's a Leghorn hat. But the, the town is now called Livorno in a more Italian pronunciation. But this particular report was calling it Livorno. And that just sounds to me pretentious. It does, doesn't it? So how did you, uh, when you were pronunciation advisor, how did you gauge this right balance between ignorance and and pretension? The practice was to recommend the nearest English sounds to the ones of the language that the name comes from. This is very difficult in some cases because there are some languages in which just about every sound is subtly different from its apparent equivalent in English. I think it's the case with Russian. It's certainly the case with French. There are only two sounds, I think, of French which have identical pronunciations to the apparent same sound in English, one of which is F, or the letter F, if you Mm -hmm. like, as in first, and the other one is M as in mother. And you can't get very far with those two sounds. No. But everything else is subtly different. The the T's are not aspirated in French where they are in English. They're dental as opposed to English being alveolar. All the vowels, a lot of the vowels are monophthongs, which in English, the nearest equivalent is a diphthong. We don't have nasal vowels. Just about everything is different. So what do you do? You can't can't say that uh, President Macron is meeting Rishi Sunak in Paris. It would sound as if they were meeting at the Folie Bergère rather than the Elysee Palace. Right, right. So you say Paris. And of course, you might say, well, that's not the French pronunciation. Very similar to the French pronunciation a thousand years ago. I imagine that the French pronunciation round about the year a thousand would have been Paris with the final S pronounced. Yes. Otherwise, why do they spell it with an S? There must have been an S pronounced at some point. Otherwise, yes. it would never yeah. develop. That's, that's what spelling's all about, trying to reflect pronunciation, yes. isn't it? It's not the other way around. Mm. No, well, it, 
it shouldn't be, although now it appears that it is, which is why we, we come back to Althorpe, because that's how it's yeah. spelled. So that's yeah. how it must be pronounced. The tyranny of, uh, of uh, literacy, right? Yes. So it, Paris, we borrowed Paris into English as Paris. Right. And then over time, because it was constantly in the mouths of English speakers, it became Paris as we know it today. Whereas yeah. constantly in the mouths of French people, it developed into Paris. Well, the yeah. R changed. The S dropped off the end. Similarly, we've got things like Marseilles, which was Marseilles until probably about 1945. Was it Versailles too? I don't know that that was ever anything but Versailles, but maybe that was because it was much more modern. By the time we borrowed Versailles, which would be in the 18th century, it would have been pronounced more like that in French. Mm. Whereas Marseilles, we've been going there for a couple of thousand years, probably, since yeah. it was a, a Greek trading port. Yes. We changed all our recommendations for Polish at the time that Solidarity, Solidarność, became prominent in the 1980s. And we had not only Lech Wałęsa as the working class shipyard worker who later became president, right. but at the same time, we got a Polish pope, Wojtyła, and we had been recommended Valenza and Voitella. But the L in both those names is has a, a bar through it, which means that it's actually pronounced like an English W rather than a, an English L. Yes. But of course, most newspapers ignored that in Britain. And we'd always ignored it as well on the grounds that we didn't we didn't always know whether there was a bar it was a barred L or not. But yeah. people started saying, Oh, but you're wrong. And when enough people were saying we were wrong, we thought, well, maybe it's time we changed. Uh -huh. So we did. And uh, nobody had any problems with with Valenza. I mean, I, there are plenty of people who are still calling Valiza because or Valiza because they don't know. Right. But uh, I think we managed to standardize Valenza and Voitua. Well done. So we, we, <laughs> it's all down to you now, right? You're, the, you're in the history books. Post-colonial sensibilities, of course, have changed everything you know we have zimbabwe the former rhodesia and its capital harare formerly known as salisbury would you say that this is the greatest area of of sensitivity at the bbc in order to sort of redress the uh, cultural hegemony well, well, of colonial times or what one of the smallest changes which the bbc took on as as a a gesture uh, towards the new government was when kenya changed to kenya because that simply changed the pronunciation of a name which didn't change. Right. But the first of them was probably Gold Coast, changing to Ghana in 1957, mm. when it became independent. And, of course, lots of places have changed their names now. Think that the Belgian Congo, think how many names that's gone through. And Cambodia as well. We've had Capuchia, the Khmer Republic, and back to Cambodia again. And city names, certainly. Um, when the Belgians left the Congo, Leopoldville was its capital. That's now called Kinshasa. Nyasaland was, uh, there was Lake Nyas. That's now, which one is that? That is now Malawi. And Nyasa means lake. And there was the Lake Nyasa. Well, Lake Nyasa, Lake Lake. Yes. Which doesn't make much sense. There are lots of places like that. There's a place in uh, England called Trepenna, which is spelt Torpenhow. And all of those three words mean hill in different dialects or languages. Mm. And there's even a Trepenna Hill, so which is a hill, 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 hill. 
I, I want to refer back now to my earlier podcast with Malachi O'Neill. He and I were talking about the Irish language, and mm -hmm. uh, Brian Friel's great play Translations came up. And as many people would know, this play deals with the story of the attempt by the English to rename all the Irish place names, kind of a linguistic genocide. And it occurred to me as I was thinking more about this that naming places, giving a place a name is a kind of a godlike power. When you name something, you have a little ownership of that thing. I imagine you're very conscious of that power, Graham. The power extends not only to the name, but to the pronunciation of the name. Yes, we never name ourselves. Do we? Nothing is named by itself. Everything has a name which has been given to it by somebody, by a person. Uh, and a person's name isn't given by that person. It's given by its, that person's parents. Later on, some people will change their name and say, this is now going to be my name. It's what I have chosen. Yes. And that's a very rare thing out yes. of the 8 billion or so people there are on the planet. I had an Indian friend who, who exerted that right and uh, had, had great trouble with her friends, getting them to respect her new name. Yes, when you've known somebody or a place by one name for a long time, it's very difficult to accept that it can be changed. As far as Everest, for instance, what was that called in the local languages? And of course, Everest is a mispronunciation because the person for whom it is named pronounced his family name Everest. Didn't know that. What do you do with country names? We don't call Germany Deutschland. That isn't out of discourtesy towards the Germans. It's simply because that's what its name is in English. Yes. Should we change that to something else simply because they want to change it? had this problem with Peking. Peking is an established Anglicization, which is nothing like, apparently nothing like the Chinese pronunciation. But one theory is that the reason that we have a K in there and a P at the beginning is that the first Europeans to go there actually spoke Romance languages, which have an unaspirated P at the beginning, and where the K before an I like that would be a very fronted K. So when they heard Beijing, they heard Beijing far more yes. like that. So they wrote it down with a P and they wrote it down with a K and then yes. we borrowed it from them. Right. It's but, a minefield, so, um, isn't it, your job? It is. It, it really you're, you're is very in a minefield. Most people around the world don't think it's worth having such a unit. It isn't unique. The Australians have certainly had a committee on English pronunciation and there are people in charge, I think in New Zealand, similarly, draw up lists and one of Catherine and my colleagues at the BBC is now a senior pronunciation advisor with Swedish radio. Right. So there are other places around the world apart from the BBC which do have such uh, small units. There's a body within the United Nations I think which settles on international forms of names there's a very large dictionary of place names that um, a geographical dictionary that Webster publishes, which has pronunciation in. And Lippincott's published an enormous book of place names, which includes pronunciations with a slight American bias, but it's usable for any yeah. English speaker. So it, it isn't unique to Britain. I thought it was, but can't remember whether it was NBC now or CBS published a handbook of pronunciation in the 1940s. 
So there was a time when at least one of the American networks thought it was worth having a publication. Okay. Speaking of American place names, I was wondering how much of a chore that was when you were an advisor. St. Louis, New Orleans, Houston, Cairo, Versailles, Birmingham. I was wondering if BBC News readers ever balked at using the New World versions of place names from the UK and other parts of the Old World when they became place names in, in, in the New World. The one that's most obviously different from its British equivalent is Birmingham and Birmingham. Yes. And I think Birmingham, Alabama was in the news for all the wrong reasons. And maybe it was easy to persuade people to say Birmingham on the grounds that they didn't want it confused with Birmingham in England. Right. Yeah. How about uh, St. Louis? Did you recommend Saint or Sunt? To the British news oh, readers. Oh dear, I don't. I, I don't think we bothered about that. It was the Lewis that we insisted that had an S on the end. Not a lot of people know that Louis Armstrong called himself Lewis, even though they must all have heard the song "Hello Dolly," in which he's, he sings, is, "Hello is Dolly, Lewis. this is Lewis, Lewis Dolly. Dolly." Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And Joe Lewis is frequently known on this side of the Atlantic yeah. as Joe Louis. Shibboleths. You can tell if someone is native by the way they pronounce the name of their hometown. Very approximately, I'm sure, New Orleans. I'm from New Orleans. But for an outsider to affect that insider pronunciation might be presumptuous, don't you think? Yes, yes. If we go to my home city of Stoke-on-Trent, one of the towns which make up the city is called Burslem. And the local pronunciation is Boslem. But if an outsider came in and said Boslem, he would be told or she would be told that you can't say that. That's just our local pronunciation. That's not the right. That's yeah. not the real pronunciation. Yeah. But that's ultimately tremendously respectful to call it by the well, way the locals pronounce. I mean, that's what you were that's that was the nature of your stories, that you would bring up the people who owned the name. Well, yes. or, so I, I I've always been very impressed by the BBC news readers, and I'm glad to finally know someone who helped them to their impressive skills. This has been a wonderful conversation. Let's end with a fun thing, the longest UK place name. It has more than 50 letters. I can't pronounce it, but you and David Crystal can both pronounce it. He's a Welshman and a linguist, so he's obliged to know how. And as pronunciation advisor, uh, presumably you could well, call yourself an advisor unless you pronounced it too. So, <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll see if I can remember. That's amazing. Translated as... <laughs> I understand St. Mary's Church in the hollow of the White Hazel near the rapid whirlpool of Slandicilio of the Red Cave. Graham Poynton, thanks for joining me. And thank you very much for inviting me. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Graham Poynton. To learn more about him, his blog, Linguism, and the BBC Pronunciation Unit, and other free extra content found only on my website, Go to paulmeyer.com, choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar, and click on episode number 64. Email me with your comments and questions, paul at paulmeyer.com. And don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. My reading of the brief extract from Paul Oster's novel, 4321, is quoted under the Copyright Doctrine of Fair Use. 
And of course, with all the summer productions now in preparation, check out my pre-recorded dialect and accent coaching materials for specific plays and musicals. The one you're planning may be among the nearly 150 shows I have prepared in this way. You'll find that page on the Other Products tab on the paulmeyer.com menu bar. And through July 31st of this year, 2023, I'm offering those packages for $100 off, just $249 US. As they include a copy of the Dialect or Accent ebook manual each actor needs in that show, you'll find this a very affordable service. Since we've been talking today about names and the importance of pronouncing them as the owner of that name would wish, I thought you'd like to hear from someone who's helping ordinary people let us know how they pronounce their names. My guest next month will be Praveen Shanbag, founder and CEO of Name Coach. Join us next time for In a Manner of Speaking.